Section 58 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 17, The Christian Renaissance by M. R. James, Part 1. Numberless portions of the wisdom of God are wanting to us. Many books of the sacred texts remain untranslated, as two books of the Maccabees which I know to exist in Greek, and many other books of divers prophets, where two references made in the Book of Kings and Chronicles. Josephus, too, in the books of his Antiquities, is altogether falsely rendered as far as concerns the chronological side and without him nothing can be known of the history of the sacred text. Unless he be corrected in a new translation, he is of no avail, and the biblical history is lost. Numberless books, again, of Hebrew and Greek expositors are wanting to the Latins, as those of Origen, Basil, Gregory, Nazianzen, Damascene, Dionysius, Chrysostom, and other most notable doctors, alike in Hebrew and in Greek. The church, therefore, is slumbering. She does nothing in this matter, nor hath done these seventy years, save that my Lord Robert, Bishop of Lincoln, of holy memory, did give to the Latin some part of the writings of St. Dionysius and of Damascene, and some other holy doctors. It is an amazing thing, this negligence of the church. For from the time of Pope Damasus, there hath not been any pope nor any of less rank who hath busied himself for the advantaging of the church by translations except the aforesaid glorious bishop it would be difficult to find a better statement in the same compass of those gaps in the knowledge of western christendom which the christian renaissance was to fill roger bacon the author of the passage and robert grosstest who was in part the subject of it were the two men who, to all appearance, first realized the scientific needs of the church. If they did not actually initiate the Christian Renaissance, they at least stood very close to its beginnings, as close, one may say, as Petrarch to the beginnings of the classical Renaissance. We shall see reason to believe that their influence upon their contemporaries and successors was very great in this respect, and it must also be said that their actual achievements in the way of preparing materials and in work done, were far from inconsiderable. They merit a more detailed notice than has commonly been accorded to them. It is a matter of common knowledge that Grosstest brought Greek books to England. Probably most of them came from Sicily and South Italy, and that in conjunction with at least two other men whose names are known, Nicholas the Greek and John of Basingstoke, he gave to the world Latin versions of certain Greek documents. Foremost among these were the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs, a famous and early apocryphal book. The manuscript from which the Latin version was made is now in the University Library at Cambridge. Of the same character was a book whose existence in a Latin dress is almost certainly due to Grosstest, though his name has not until recently been mentioned in connection with it. This is the pretty Greek romance which treats of the life of Asenath, the patriarch Joseph's Egyptian wife. Though now forgotten, it was widely known to medieval men, owing to its inclusion in the great speculum historiale of Vincent, commonly called of Beauvais. This claim is sometimes set up in Grosteste's behalf that he translated 
the lexicon of suetus into latin but when this very curious assertion is examined we find that all he did was to render into latin a few of the more important biographical articles in it the principal one which has survived in his version is the article on jesus christ this is in reality another apocryphon containing the story of an inquiry into the priestly descent of our lord however the undoubted fact that he possessed a manuscript of the lexicon is a sufficiently interesting one far more important in its bearings on christian literature was the latin version of that text of the epistles of st ignatius which is now accepted as presenting them in their most genuine form this version too is reckoned as due to gross test but it seemed to have been the one which attracted least attention of any not more than one ancient copy of it is known to exist and the only medieval writers who show any knowledge of it are oxford franciscans members of the house to which the bishop bequeathed his library not until the seventeenth century were its merits and importance suspected by archbishop usher of dionysius the aeropagite latin versions are known and widely disseminated long before grosteste's day it was presumably the unsatisfactory character of these that led him to undertake a new one and it is improbable that he ever brought it to a conclusion versions of the treatise on the divine names and of the letters are very definitely ascribed to him and it is also likely that the detached letter to timothy on the martyrdoms of st peter and paul were rendered into latin by him or by his assistants yet however much of the work he may have succeeded in finishing it is certain that in the fifteenth century the need for a fresh translation of the whole was felt in italy and that the need was supplied by the indefatigable camadolite ambrosio traversari the versions of work by john damascene of which bacon speaks seem upon examination to resolve themselves into a commentary upon the defective latin version of the treatise de fide orthodoxa made a century before by burgundio of pisa such is the list of grosteste gifts to the latin church if not very large in extent it is assuredly very remarkable in quality with the exception of the work of john damascene it consists entirely of writings for which a pre-christian or an apostolic date was claimed in other words we see in grosteste the beginnings of that interest in the origins of christianity which is usually regarded as characteristic of a later age he is a collector of what claims to be ancient and primitive others will follow to whom chrysostom and basil will seem better worth translating and their day will be a long one we have ample evidence of grosteste's knowledge of greek less is known of his attainments in hebrew and yet evidence can be produced to show that they were not contemptible a franciscan writer of the next century henry of costasi circa thirteen thirty six to whom reference will be made hereafter had before him when writing an exposition of the psalter a copy of the text of that book in hebrew with an interlinear translation into latin this had been the property if not the work of grosteste little positive proof beyond the common rumour of his contemporaries can be added to this fact but even if it stands by itself it is well worthy of note it is clear that the bishop's chief interest centred in his greek studies more than a respectable working knowledge of the other sacred tongue is not claimed for him here 
thus much it had seemed right to say of the work of the earlier of the two men who had been commemorated at the outset of this chapter of the other roger bacon to wit we may speak in shorter compass page after page in his works attests his clear perception of the needs of scientific theology of the crucial importance of a knowledge of the original tongues greek hebrew and chaldean of the need for a revision of the latin bible by the help of the oldest manuscripts and as we have seen of the necessity of reintroducing to the west the works of the great greek fathers and perhaps his greatest service to the church of his age may have lain in the statement of these needs something it is true he himself achieved towards supplying them he wrote grammars of the greek hebrew and arabic languages the first two of these it appears that we possess and a single copy of a greek dictionary also survives which there seems good reason to attribute to him the third is not known to exist we have moreover part of a series of letters which may with some confidence be regarded as bacon's in these he deals at length with points of hebrew grammar for the benefit of a friend himself evidently an accomplished hebraist who had sought his advice it must be confessed that the fruit of these labors was not great yet we shall see that it continued to be produced even if in scanty measure up to the day of the fuller harvest that grosteste and bacon had their precursors we must expect to find indeed it is pretty certain that there was never a time when the knowledge of either hebrew or greek was altogether dead in the latin church in almost every generation we can point to some document which bears witness to the possession of such knowledge by scholars scattered here and there in the middle of the twelfth century for example Johannes burgundio of pisa executed badly enough it seems a whole series of versions from the greek among these were the homilies of chrysostom on matthew the tract of nemesius then believed to be gregory of nysa on the nature of man and above all the treatise of john of damascus on the orthodox faith of which mention has already been made again in the second half of the same century in english odo his personality remains obscure dedicates to gilbert foliot bishop of london an introduction to theology in which long passages from the old testament are quoted in the original hebrew there were also in the latter half of this same century the makings of a greek school at the abbey of st denis the reason of this is not far to seek the patron saint of that great house was a greek and as all men believe the author of a famous group of writings as early as the eleventh century in ten twenty two a copy of the gospels in greek had been written for the abbey in the twelfth century odo de deo who seceded sugier as abbot sent one of his monks william of gap to the east on a literary mission as it seems william brought greek books back with him from constantinople and made a latin version of a life of the philosopher secundus which was extensively copied to him also we may assign a latin version of a set of greek arguments to the pauline epistles this last piece of work he did when abbot of st denis between eleven seventy two and eleven eighty six at the request of herbert de beauchamp the friend and biographer of st thomas of canterbury a fellow monk of williams Johannes saracenus a correspondent of john of salisbury and in after years abbot at vercelli 
translated into Latin the greater part of the pseudo-Dionysian writings. A second William, monk of St. Denis, did the same for a Greek panegyric on the reputed author. Down to a late date, part of the office of St. Denis's day was set in Greek at the Abbey, and the Bibliothèque Nationale possesses a couple of 12th-century Greek manuscripts which belong to the same house, and may well have been among the spoils brought back by William of Gap. Yet, after all, these were isolated phenomena. Bacon's estimate of the needs of his time remains the true one. It is amply confirmed by contemporary literature. Perhaps the readiest and most convincing demonstration of it is furnished by the catalogues of the great libraries which come from this period. The value of these documents for purposes of literary history is self-evident. They provide us in the directest way imaginable with a view of the resources of the learned communities of the time. It will be worthwhile, therefore, to discuss in a summary fashion one typical example. The passage of Bacon, which stands at the head of this chapter, was written in or about the year 1271. The author survived the year 1292, and we possess a detailed catalogue of one of the largest libraries in England, which was drawn up within a very few years after the latter date. We may then fairly use it as illustrative of the condition of theological learning and of the range of theological literature at the close of Bacon's life. The library in question is that of Christ Church Priory at Canterbury. In extent it rivaled any of its time, for it contained close upon 2,000 volumes, and without entering into details as to the method of its formation, we may assert generally that it is possible to a large extent to discriminate the earlier from the later acquisitions, and to arrange these latter in chronological order. In that portion of the library, which dates back to the days of Lanfranc and Anselm, fragmentary survivals are traceable of a learning which had no attraction for the mass of clerics in Bacon's day. The best examples of these is a copy of the treatise of Arrhenius against heresies. In all likelihood, the only copy then in England, there are indications also of the influence of John of Salisbury in the list of the books bequeathed by St. Thomas to his cathedral. But as we should expect, this influence is more clearly seen in the presence of certain classical Latin authors than in the province of sacred literature. Coming nearer to the period with which we are chiefly concerned, we notice that Grosteste has left his mark on the Canterbury Library. Copies of most of the texts which he restored to the Latins are to be found in the catalogue. Of Roger Bacon, however, and of his work there is no sign. Not a single Greek or Hebrew book is discoverable. All trace of the learning of Theodore has disappeared. The theologian par excellence is, as always, Augustine, and the other three Latin doctors are present in great force. For the rest, the divinity library is made up chiefly of glossed books of the Bible, of distinctions, sermons, the books of Anselm, Alexander Neckham, Peter Lombard, Richard of Prefo, Robert Corson, Peter Comistor, and the like, while among the latest accretions are numbered the works of the great schoolmen. Thus almost the only aid to the literal interpretation of the biblical text which the monks of this great house possessed was what they could gather from the works of Jerome. Peter Comistor and Josephus were their teachers in biblical history, and for the history of the church they had to turn to Rufinus's 
version of the history of Eusebius to the tripart history and to the numerous lives of saints. The state of this one great library must be taken as typical of that of others throughout Europe. Yet if the darkness was thick, it was already beginning to lift. By means of a recent discovery, the present writer has ascertained that in this very library, a copy of the books of the Old Testament from Genesis to Ruth in Greek existed early in the 15th century. The manuscript, now at Oxford, is of Grosteste's date and was very probably brought by him to England. There were younger contemporaries of Grosteste and of Bacon who carried on the work of the great teachers, and that in no unworthy fashion. At Ramsey Abbey, where the influence of the former may fairly be suspected, for it lay in his diocese, a small band of scholars were in possession of the whole of the New Testament in Hebrew. They had brought up the libraries of the suppressed synagogues at Huntington and Stamford. One among them, Prior Gregory, had furthermore studied Greek. A bilingual Psalter remains to attest the fact. At a somewhat later date, the stores of Hebrew manuscripts accumulated by his predecessors enabled Lawrence Holbeach, a monk of the same house, to compile a Hebrew lexicon. Another great work was set on foot in the second half of the 13th century, a work whose existence is hardly suspected nowadays. This was nothing less than a literal translation from Hebrew into Latin of the greater part of the Old Testament, clearly a work of English scholars, for all the known manuscripts which contain any part of it are of English origin and are preserved in English libraries. Of the originators of this enterprise and of the character of their work, we may look to learn more. But even in our present state of knowledge, we can very confidently predicate of them that they owed their inspiration to the influence of one or the other of the two great champions of the original tongues. It must not be supposed that for England alone is claimed the honor of having attempted a scientific treatment of the sacred text at this time. The principal impulse to study seems to have been given by Englishmen, it is true, but work was also being done outre-mer. Before the middle of the 13th century, the Dominicans of Paris had attempted the task of systematically correcting the text of the Latin Bible. The results, however, were not happy in the opinion of the man best qualified to judge of them. Bacon is indeed unsparing in his strictures. The work had been undertaken without adequate knowledge of the original tongues, and carried on without reference being made to the oldest and best manuscripts of the Vulgate. The consequence is that the Paris correction, of which there are two editions, is the worst possible corruption and destruction of the text of God. But Bacon was not merely a destructive critic. It was seemingly a friend and correspondent of his own, William de Mara, who eventually compiled a correctorium based on a sound knowledge of Hebrew. On its composition he spent not less than forty years, and it is believed that he derived material assistance from Bacon himself in the course of his work. The critical labors of which we have been speaking were chiefly concerned with the text of the Old Testament, and it is a noteworthy circumstance that in the 14th century the knowledge of Hebrew and the application of that knowledge to biblical studies was far commoner than the knowledge of Greek. It is not difficult to account for this, so far as Western Europe is concerned. Teachers of Hebrew were, as Bacon tells us, very easily procurable. 
it is true that he adds that it was equally easy to acquire greek but it must be remembered that in the case of hebrew books in which the language could be studied and on which critical and exegetical work could be done were plentiful wherever a community of jews existed the scriptures in hebrew could be readily obtained not so with greek the few greek manuscripts imported into england by grosstest the greek gospels which the byzantine emperor had sent to st louis the two or three volumes at st denis were rarities of the first water the stores of greek literature in the basilian monasteries of southern italy and sicily to say nothing of greece and of byzantium were not yet unlocked that ancient scholarship to which we owe the greco-latin manuscripts of southern france the laudian manuscript of the acts that baeta used and the famous codices of st gaul had altogether died the eyes of a few far-sighted scholars were turned toward the grecian lands but as yet they could do no more than look and long still the truths to which roger bacon had given expression were not forgotten especially in the ranks of his own the franciscan order men were found who realized and acted upon them scraps of hebrew and greek learning alphabets transcripts of the lord's prayer and the like are of not infrequent occurrence in manuscripts of franciscan origin these may be only straws showing what way the wind sets more significant is the appearance among the franciscans of the greatest exponent of the literal sense of scripture whom the medieval world can show this was nicholas de lyra who died in thirteen forty it is not so much because of his learning that he is important though his knowledge of hebrew was highly notable it is rather his attitude his desire to ascertain what the words of the sacred text actually mean which differentiates him from the ancient allegorists the same tendency is seen in the work of a far less famous franciscan of the same generation henry of cotesy is the author of a commentary upon the psalms which appears to exist in but one manuscript in this the insistence upon the literal sense the constant reference to the original hebrew and the independence of the writer's judgment who is forever canvassing and contradicting the opinions of lyra are such as would have rejoiced bacon's heart for a considerable time the franciscan houses at both oxford and cambridge must have kept alive the interest in this new learning we are fairly well informed about the establishment at oxford and concerning the cambridge house we can at least tell who were its teachers of divinity henry of costacy was among them the oxford friars did not it is true preserve the traditions of grosstesque and of bacon into the reformation period for leland has a sorry tale to tell of the neglected condition of their once noble library yet the tradition of learning lingered in the order at the beginning of the sixteenth century richard brinkley provincial of the grey friars in england was a student of hebrew he borrowed a hebrew psalter from the monks of bury st edmunds and he was moreover the owner of more than one greek biblical manuscript among them of the leicester codex of the new testament well known to textual critics more is yet to be said of the franciscans in england and of their services to sacred literature they did not confine their attention to the bible there is another great literary enterprise the credit of whose initiation belongs to them 
though its subsequent development must be assigned to a benedictine described shortly it was an attempt to discover and locate all the works of the principal known authors both sacred and secular which existed in england at some time in the fourteenth century circulars were issued or visits paid to about one hundred and sixty monasteries a list of some ninety authors was drawn up and the writings of each enumerated the list of libraries and that of books were then fused together in such a way that from the completed work it is possible to ascertain what books by each writer were to be found in england and in what libraries each book existed the name given to the compilation is the catalogus or registrum liborum angeli and the indications that in this first form it is the work of a member or members of the franciscan order are hardly to be mistaken early in the fifteenth century the work received a most important expansion at the hands of a monk of bury john boston by name he added a score of names to the list of libraries and raised to nearly seven hundred the number of authors whose works were enumerated he gave moreover a short biographical sketch of each writer drawn from the best sources at his disposal so that the book in its completed form might claim to be called a dictionary of literature if this catalogue of boston's did not serve as a model to trithemius and his successors and there is no reason to suppose that it did it was at least the legitimate ancestor of the later bibliothecae what is more to the point at present it furnishes a key to the literary possessions and perhaps still more to the literary needs of england about the year fourteen hundred the importance of which it would be difficult to exaggerate it may be necessary to return to the consideration of england's share in the movement but we must now proceed to extend the range of our outlook we have to ask whether in the home of the classical revival any consciousness existed of the needs of the church corresponding to the feeling that we have seen stirring in the minds of grosseteste and of bacon as far as we can judge this question must be answered in the negative exceptional opportunities for the furthering of christian scholarship lay ready to the hands of the italians in the fourteenth century yet there is strikingly little to show that advantage was taken of them it has already been hinted that in italy the knowledge of greek as a spoken language was far from uncommon large portions of the south were as bacon says purely greek on the adriatic coast greek was widely known the court of rome had its relations with the eastern patriarchates the points at issue between the greek and latin churches were productive of a long series of controversial writings on both sides there was in fact no good reason why the knowledge of the greek bible and of the great greek fathers should not have continued to exist at the papal court and have been diffused from thence over the west yet we do not find that such knowledge existed in any appreciable degree the thought of applying the knowledge of greek to the study of the bible seems hardly to have occurred to the italian scholars of the fourteenth century there are it is true examples dating from this period of gospel books and other parts of the bible written in greek and latin and emanating from venice and florence it is commonly said too that an english bishop adam easton bishop of norwich and cardinal of st cecilia made a fresh version of the whole bible from the original while in italy but this last assertion stands in need of corroboration, and at best it would indicate not an activity of italians in sacred studies 
but the existence in italy of materials by the aid of which such studies could be prosecuted the difficulty of discovering any symptoms of consciousness that the field of theological study needed widening is of more weight than are the isolated examples of a wider learning which have been cited before the fifteenth century has fairly opened we find nothing that can be called a decided current setting in the direction of wider learning or true sacred scholarship it was not immediately that the rush of new discoveries involved those whose prime interest lay in things sacred but when we hear of a queen of cyprus presenting a copy of the gospels in greek to a pope of a greek prelate on his way to the council of florence giving another copy to a church at verona of a cardinal cassanus in the same year by a third at constantinople and within four years more of copies being written in italy itself we feel sure that the movement is well in train once begun its development could be followed up along many lines three in particular suggest themselves as fruitful and indications not likely to be fallacious first we may take stock of what was done in the way of collecting ancient texts and forming libraries in which to preserve them secondly we may review the work of the translators and copyists who made the new material accessible to their public and in the third place we may trace the beginnings of criticism as applied to the documents which were already known and to those which began now to be known for the first time much has been written upon the first of these topics but chiefly from the point of view of men interested in the classical revival there is not a great deal that can suitably be added in this place to the story of the rediscovery of ancient literature the work done by the collectors of greek books was a wholly new work we shall see the results of it most clearly in the course of our examination of the libraries with the early literature of the latin church the case was different there were but few christian writers among those whom poggio and his fellows rescued from an age-long obscurity and the welcome accorded to these by the humanists was theirs as latinists rather than as theologians tertullian and lacantius are the leading names of this class the first copy of the works of the former was found at basil by tommaso parentucelli afterwards nicholas v lacantius never a frequent author in medieval libraries had hardly found a single copyist between the eleventh and the fourteenth century a library at bologna had preserved the earliest and best manuscript of his institutions and other tracts were yielded up by st gall and the german abbeys the most important latin books apart from these were some of the early versions of greek patristic works such as that of origen's homilies on luke the finding of which at st cecilia's in rome gladdened the heart of ambrogio traversari however it must be allowed that upon the whole the latin finds of the earlier period were inconsiderable the work of irenaeus though known to exist attracted very little attention chiefly we may conjecture because of its barbarous style the latin version of hermes was hardly read and the writings of arnobius and minucius felix which are of the kind that would have proved most pleasing to the humanists were reserved for the explorers of the next century the libraries which received and preserved the stock of new material claimed to be discussed at greater length the natural centre for the formation of a great christian library was the papal court 
private amateurs like niccolo nicoli might and actually did accomplish much in the way of rescuing and bringing together books of all kinds but it is a clear and familiar fact that what they prized most were the masterpieces of the pagan literature it is the clergy and above all the pope whom we expect to find caring for the archives of christian antiquity fortunately we are in a position to estimate very accurately by the help of library catalogues the measure of what was done in this time the greatest of the early papal bibliophiles was nicholas v through 55. it is not necessary to spend words here upon describing his activity as a collector or his munificence as a patron of letters we shall run less risk of exaggeration if we draw from so unemotional a document as the inventory of his books made at his decease a short survey of the collection if dry will at least afford some basis of solid fact in fourteen fifty five then the library of nicholas v consisted of eight hundred and twenty four latin and three hundred and fifty two greek manuscripts we must not expect to find in the latin library any sign that the learning of the schools is losing its interest the theology and the canon law of the later centuries are as fully represented here as in any abbey library of them all what we have to note as significant is the presence partly in old copies newly brought to light partly in new versions or in manuscripts written to order of a number of writings whose existence or whose importance was but just beginning to be realized of these the most striking may be instanced here the new version of chrysostom's homilies on matthew by ambrogio travisari side by side with the old and faulty one of burgundio of pisa cyril of alexandria upon john translated by george of trebizond several copies of origin upon luke to which allusion has already been made then a noteworthy item a latin version of maimonides on the sense of the scriptures later and after masses of volumes of augustine jerome and thomas aquinas appear first a translation of the acts of the ephesine council and then disguised as nicenus episcopus lugandensis the work of irenaeus against heresies worthy of mention also are the following the acts of the five great councils the preparatorio evangelica of eusebius and george of trebison's version tertullian victor vitensis the chronicon of eusebius josephus against appian and a version of philo judaeus by lilio of cita de castello cyprian and lacantius in versions either old or new of works of ephraim the syrian athanasius and basil are the remaining indications of the new movement which occur in the catalogue of nicholas v's latin library the inventory of his greek books is of course in one sense from end to end a list of novelties and yet it is rather disappointing the volumes are shortly and meagerly described their contents if new to the scholars of that day are just those which are most familiar to us it is in part consoling to find that nicholas possessed no great treasure that has since perished but still the absence of any such entry robs the catalogue of an element of excitement it is in truth somewhat commonplace chrysostom heads the list with forty volumes and gregory nazianzen 
Basil, Athanasius, and Simeon the Metaphrust are largely represented. There is but one volume of Origin. There are two of Philo, and two copies of what may be the Clementine homilies. The Bible is represented by some scattered portions of the Old Testament. A fair number of Gospel books, Evangelistaria, and a few copies of the Acts and Epistles. No such thing as a complete Greek Bible occurs, though we know that at this date the famous Vatican Codex B was already in the Pope's possession. The character of the collection did not alter materially during the remainder of the 15th century. At the death of Sixtus IV in 1484, it had grown considerably in bulk. Instead of 350 Greek manuscripts, there were now about a 1,000. Still, we note no special, striking additions to the list of early church writers. Origen, for example, is just as poorly represented as he was under Nicholas V. One important section, however, shows a marked growth. The Bibles, or parts of Bibles, have swelled to a goodly number of 58. The examination of this, the most important library of the West in the 15th century, teaches us that the main interest of Christian scholars was centered not on the literature of the first ages, but upon the works of the great doctors of the fourth and fifth centuries, upon the definers and expositors of developed dogma. This was the natural outcome, perhaps, of the long period spent under the influence of scholastic theology. But it was also the inevitable result of the condition of things in the headquarters of Greek learning, the Eastern Church had herself forgotten Justin, Clement of Alexandria, and Arrhenius, and regarded Origen with suspicion. We know now that as late as the 16th century, a Greek Arrhenius and a copy of the ecclesiastical memoirs of Hegesippus were lurking in a Greek island. There they were destined to remain and to perish. Yet had their existence been known in the time of Nicholas V, it is doubtful whether he and his contemporaries would have been much excited by the announcement. A couple of generations later, the case would have been widely different. The literary treasures of Italy were by no means confined to the Vatican, although it would be dreary work to investigate in detail the inventories of all the great collectors, a word must still be said about those of Venice and Florence. At the first-named place, Bessiaron's great library was deposited, among whose treasures was at least one volume of extraordinary value for the history of Christian beliefs, our best copy of the treatise of Epiphanius against heresies. Florence was enriched not only with the beginnings of the Medician collection, but with the earlier and hardly less precious library of Niccolo Niccoli, died 1437, which passed to the convent of San Marco. In the list of the 180 Greek manuscripts which that community owned in the last years of the century, we note a few names, and only a few, that we did not meet at Rome, particularly that of Justin Martyr. From this Florence copy, Pico della Mirandola must in all probability have made his translation of the Cohortatio Agentes. In the Latin collection we find such items as three volumes of Tertullian, all of them copies on paper made from the ancient manuscript, which had come into the hands of Cardinal Orsini. Cyprian, Lactantius, and Ignatius, too, are there, with, of course, many of the freshly made versions of Greek books. That of the letter of Aristeas, so-called, from the pen of Matteo Palmieri, 
is a welcome variation from the everlasting Chrysostoms and Basils. Literature owes much indeed to Niccoli, but Christian literature has specially to thank another of its friends, Lorenzo di Medici, for the preservation of that inestimable monument, the unique manuscript of the miscellanies Stromates of Clement of Alexandria. End of section 58